0: Welcome to Brahm Show. This is Brahm. And we are right in the middle of the series, Great Works. And when we say great works... Please don't misunderstand. We are not talking about what your English teacher told you in school was a great work. We are not talking about William Shakespeare or the like. Instead, we are talking about works that make a uh, impact or make a comment, give commentary on our culture, whether it be government, politics, uh, finances, or um, change, for instance. I do find it kind of amusing that our last podcast was called Who Moved My Cheese, was the book that we looked at, and that was less than 100 pages. I want to say it was around 92 pages, and you could literally sit down in one sitting, have the entire thing read. If you took an Uber, by the time you got to your destination, you could probably have that book read. That's 92 pages with big uh, lettering, big font. So, but this book, is the total opposite end of the spectrum. And if you're wondering what the book is, I'll give you a clue to start off with. There's a simple question that's asked throughout the book at uh, various times, and that question is, who is John Galt? Who is John Galt? Now, those of you that have read the book, or maybe you've just heard other people talk about it, you immediately knew what book we're looking at, what book we're going to be talking about. And, of course, we are looking at Atlas Shrugged, written by Ayn Rand. Now, uh, why I think that's funny is we just finished a book that was 92 pages, or less than 100 pages, how many ever pages it was. And this book, Atlas Shrugged, uh, let me put it to you this way. I listened to it on YouTube several years ago, and I listened for eight hours, and when the eight hours were up, the eight hours had finished, I thought to myself, ah, finally, I, I, I can't believe it. I did it. I feel like I've accomplished something. I listened to the entire book. And then I saw that was only part one. There was a an entire second part to this book. It is a long book. And so in order to get the entire thing covered, I just won't have time. So I'm going to give you a, a few a key points as we move forward. And then we'll dive into what the book is actually trying to convey. So this book is basically about an heirs of a ty- a uh, railroad tycoon who uh, he passes away, his children then take the business, and we see as, and this is basically a dystopian book, and we're seeing a government that has intruded into every aspect of their business and has their fingers, their claws into every possible facet that you could imagine. And so as this young lady, uh, her brother is actually the one supposed to be running the company, but he just likes bureaucracy. He likes regulation. He wants to try to get the regulations to be on his side. Uh, Basically, he's a crony capitalist. And her desire is to find the best way for the company to move forward. His thought is, well, let's appease the government and use the government to get on our side so that we can keep our competition down. Now, don't be fooled. She also wants to keep the competition down, but her desire is not to use government to do it. And so as we progress through the book, we see that uh, this then falls into several different areas, and she finds herself trying to make deals with metal workers and new types of iron for the railroad and for the tracks. And as this progresses, the government encroaches again and again and again, until eventually they realize, and she realizes, that all the great brains of the society are disappearing. There is no true new idea. There's no new thought. It's as though everybody has just abandoned uh, their entrepreneur spirit and those that do have that are using government to facilitate that. But those that think outside the box and have ideas that are revolutionary are nowhere to be found. Now in the middle of all this, the question is posed over and over again, who is John Gold? Eventually, This heiress to this uh, tycoon, the daughter, decides to build uh, using this new steel. She's going to build tracks. She's going to build trains. She's going to go out and test drive this and put herself at risk uh, to show the government and those that listen to the government that it is perfectly safe. And so what does she name this new line? She names it John Galt. Now, you could say, well, there you go. That's who John Galt is. And if you said that, mm, you missed it. It still wasn't him. We'll get there in a moment. So despite all the regulations, all the encroaching governments, all the deal-making and the swindling behind the scenes, she manages to make this successful line and does an amazing job, despite all the efforts to hinder this and to stop it. But she's also noticing that people just continue to disappear. But it's not just random people. They are people that have ingenuity. They are people that are the brains of the society. They are ones that have uh, the entrepreneurial spirit and a mindset that doesn't just give in to government uh, and their control. So we're going to fast-forward a great deal of the book. I mean, a great deal of the book. And in our fast-forwarding, we're going to find she's on a train. She's riding with a hobo, if I remember correctly. She is riding with a hobo. She's at least talking to a hobo. That much I remember. And in the conversation, he says that John Galt is uh, this guy that is at this one place, and he had invented uh, a motor, that uses basically, if I recall, static electricity or that type of thing. And so now she has a brand new mission. Her mission is to find John Galt. She is set and determined this is going to be her objective. This is what she's going to do. Now, when she finds him, she finds him basically in a a secret valley, if you will where he has systematically gone out and recruited all of the brains that have disappeared from society. So it wasn't random. Remember, he has systematically, he said, oh, that guy thinks outside the box. Let's go bring him in. That guy's an entrepreneur and he has amazing ideas. Let's reach out and get him. Now, if you don't know, America did exactly the same thing with the with the Nazis after World War II, that's how we ended up getting to the moon is we reached in and grabbed their scientists and said, hey, uh, we were pretending like we were John Galt, right? We reached in, pulled them in, and incorporated them into our mission or into our missile uh, projections and our shuttles and all that comes from the John Galt mentality. So when she gets there and she finds that all these brains... Are there, she has to make a decision. Does she go back to the world, go back to the United States and uh, try to fix and put together this broken company that the government has so destroyed, or does she stay where she is in the valley? Now, John Galt would like for her to stay. However, she chooses to leave. I think that's enough of the principle of the book to go ahead and start breaking down how this is applied to us as a nation. And if we're going to be quite honest, this is not only an American issue. This is a worldwide issue. And we can't help but see that as we consider the effects and the responses from the vast majority of nations around the world. And in America, right, we don't refer to ourselves necessarily as nations, but the rest of the states of America, we are the United States, we are seeing the same principle uh, with this COVID. Now, let me tell you, I never thought for a million years that Sweden was a place for me to live, but the, their response to the lockdown and to COVID was nothing but American, and America and the vast majority of the states is nothing but, oh, help me, European, and, and that's not even really accurate. That's an insult to the Europeans, except that they're doing the exact same thing. So, like for instance, in California, we have the governor of California having backroom deals and eating in restaurants with doctors and the head of health professions while all along telling their citizens that it's unsafe for them to step outside their home. Now, let's be clear about this. This is not a new thing. The only thing new about it is the brazen attempts of the politicians that they just don't care anymore. That's the only new thing to the whole story. Because they've been doing the backhanded backroom deals all along. They've been trading our liberties for a slice of the cake, for just a piece of the pie, while the rest of us get the shaft. This has been going on for decades, generations. And those of you that are listening and you're not in America, and that's a crazy thing that I get to say on this podcast, but you're listening and you're not in America, don't be so ignorant to think that your nation, your state, your province isn't doing exactly the same thing. And is it okay for me to say, I am tired of the rich feeling like they need to apologize for their wealth? Well, that's with one caveat. That's as long as they did not get their wealth by crony capitalism. If they got it by crony capitalism, they owe us an apology. But the vast majority of those that are wealthy in America got that way by hard work, that and using their brains. And because of their hard work, their labor-intensive, if you've ever owned a company, if you've ever owned a business, you will be able to, you can agree with me, it didn't just happen. The money didn't just start rolling in. You had to think. You had to engage. You had to act. And generally, you end up working a whole lot more hours than if you had a regular 40-hour work week. So then why, as a nation, do we find it necessary to penalize those that labor intensely and suffer the time that they could have spent with their family, that they could have spent in leisure? Instead, they use their sweat, their blood, their tears to build something, and now we are going to despise them and tell them that, well, as Obama would say, you didn't build that. And our one answer is, well, we'll regulate them. That's what we're going to do. We're going to regulate them. And so then they've got regulation after regulation after regulation. Now, there are some of them that don't mind the regulations. For instance, Zuckerberg now doesn't mind the regulations. Now, I promise you, when he first started Facebook and turned it into a business where it was making money and he was having advertisements, he hated regulations. But he was still an outsider. Facebook wasn't an insider game yet. But when, as soon as Facebook became an insider game, now he loves regulations. It's the same. It was the same with Steve Jobs. It's the same with Bill Gates. As soon as they are insiders, then we want regulations because it will help us hold our stance on the inside and keep the outsiders out. But the vast majority of entrepreneurs are still trying to dig their way out. Still trying to dig something out, carve something out, not only for them, but for their children, their posterity. Now get this, I don't suggest we give them a helping hand. I don't. I don't think we should help them one bit. The only help we should give them is no help and no interference. If you want to know what John Galt's answer would have been, that would have been his answer. No help and no interference. Let the failing businesses fail and the thriving businesses thrive and get out of the way of the American people. Or, if you happen to be one of the ones that listens somewhere else in the world, get out of the way of the citizen of your nation, right? And let us do what we know how to do best, and that's to provide for our own family. And in providing for our own family, we will also then be offering goods and services to our community, and everybody will be better off. So to answer the question who is John Galt? John Galt is a genius who is tired of the strangulation that regulations come with from the government.